Welcome to Chasing Hermes, the pursuit of Mercury, with your hosts, Sean and Jason. Thank you once again for listening to Chasing Hermes. I am your host, Sean. And I'm Jason. We're live here from our dorm room floor where we have convened once again to uh, discuss life, the universe, and everything in between. <laughs> but not really. <laughs> but not really. So, so far in all of these podcasts, we have tried to, at least in some way, uncover some sort of mystery about the universe that we normally don't encounter in our daily, everyday lives. Would you agree? Absolutely. Well, it seems that we're partaking in uh, a journey that has been going on since the beginning of mankind's existence. And what we're really trying to do is, I think, delve into mysteries that seem so far off. They seem as though they're unobtainable. It's like grasping a cloud, and as soon as you move your hands through it, the cloud disperses. And we could say that in each of the topics we've covered so far, this is somewhat of what we're doing, is we are grasping up into the heavens in the hopes that in return the divine will grace us with some perhaps small bit of wisdom along that journey. I think you've totally deciphered the title of Chasing Hermes, because that's exactly how I see it as well. Oh, yeah, you're right. And it only yeah. took us, what, eight episodes to figure it out. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you're right. I mean, we are chasing at this this journey, and this very much is, is similar and, and reminds me of the concept of Hermes as that which rises and descends, changes, yet is ever the same. And, you know, in our previous episode, we, we heard remnants of this in the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, which did say of the one thing that it rises to heaven and descends once again back to earth. So we very much have this concept of man reaching into the heavens and the heavens reaching down to the earth. Yeah, and not only that, but also that there is some sort of exchange taking taking place here. That when the one thing rises up into heaven, it collects something. It collects some of the potential or some of the seed that is up there. And then when it descends, it brings it down back into the earth and germinates and bears fruit in the earth. And it is said that it is only when the seed or the one thing can be allowed this complete freedom of rising up and then reuniting with earth again. And that's the only time when the true power is fully realized. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me of a tradition where I'm from, where you erect these maypoles. Do you have maypoles where you're from? Um, they're not as common in the United States, but everybody is familiar with them. So a maypole essentially is this giant phallus symbol that is erected on the earth and kind of penetrates the earth. And it's, it's usually erected at harvest time. And what some people believe that this represents is that it's some sort of fertility symbol, um, like a like a uni- unification of the male and the female. And you have a similar symbol in Hinduism, where you have the yoni shaped, which is usually mm-hmm. filled with water. It's like a like a sculpture. Yeah. And the yoni uh, is filled with water, and then inside you have this this kind of shaft or mound. And again, it's it's represents the unification of male and female. And if you will, also of the higher and of the lower. 
Oh, okay. That's interesting. And with the Latin word, we call this the axis mundi, or the center of the world. Oh, oh the axis mundi. But that's not the only expression of this idea of the above meaning the below. I guess maybe the most primordial symbol of this in the cultural imagination of our forefathers is the idea of the sacred mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, in, mm-hmm. in ancient Greece, you had the idea of Mount Olympus. Yeah, definitely. That was the dwelling place for the gods who, who all sat upon Mount Olympus and looked down upon mankind below. Yeah. And if you've ever seen pictures from up there, it, it doesn't seem that nice. <laughs> right. It's, it's kind of rocky. <laughs> but uh, I guess, I guess it, it's changed a bit since the days of ancient oh, Greece. sure. In uh, Tibetan culture, you have the idea of the Himalayas being the sacred mountains in their tradition, and that that's also the abode of, of, of the Godhead, if you will. Mm-hmm. In Japan, you have the idea of Mount Fuji being the sacred mountain, mm-hmm. and that penetrates virtually all of Japan's culture for, for millennia. You have this depiction of Mount Fuji as being this sacred place. There's also the sacred mountain of Hinduism, Mount Meru. Mm-hmm. And just like Mount Olympus, where Zeus was said to reside, Mount Meru is the home of the Brahma, mm. which is the sort of ultimate father god of Hinduism, right. I believe. Right. So in all of these traditions, we have this concept of a mountain. And upon the mountain at the summit resides some sort of divine celestial force, uh, many times a, a paternal um, father figure that looks down upon man and, and represents this, this wisdom. And if you think about a mountain, uh, especially in ancient times, this is something that really represented almost an untraversable journey from the base of the mountain to its summit, where would reside this great wisdom or this, uh, this great divine uh, presence. And, you know, today we have... Um, Gondolas and funiculars. Yeah, we have to look through the eyes of the ancient man and understand that um, for them, this what this did represent uh, a great tumultuous uh, journey that would be taking place here. So not only do you have this great towering presence of a mountain that really does reach up into the heavens, quite literally, um, but also you have the this almost impossible path between you and its summit. If you think of the story of Exodus, that is essentially a travel or a journey through the wilderness to reach the sacred place, the sacred manifestation, if you will. Along that journey, Moses had to traverse up onto the Mount Sinai. And again, that's where he was told that God resided, where he could meet Jehovah. Right, exactly. And that's where he received the instructions carved in stone. Mm, yes, right? etched in earth. Etched in earth, exactly. And furthermore, you have the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which mm. is like the holiest place in the world for all the people of the Jewish and the Muslim faiths. Wow. Yeah, so I think we can easily see this parallel that extends beyond cultural boundaries, that man of all cultures has seen these mountains as literally staircases into heaven. Absolutely. Staircase is an interesting analogy as well, because you have the idea of Jacob's ladder, you have the idea of, of, of a gradual, step-by-step ascent into heaven. Right, right. But what to do if you don't have a mountain mm. around you? Maybe 
you're in in the middle of the desert. What do you do? <laughs> right. You build one, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> you build you build a sacred mountain. <laughs> well, we don't have a mountain. But we're the Egyptians. God damn it, we're gonna make one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you not to put a mountain here for us to worship on. <laughs> well, the, people have been speculating about the pyramids forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they're just so old. They're like 6,000 years old. Right. We, I don't think speculation don't will end anytime soon. Uh, no, no, I, I don't want to get into it. But I mean, it's clear that they were uh, graves, you know, at, at their prim- primary function was, was to be a, a great freaking grave right. around... Um, uh, around a great man, a pharaoh, or a, or his family, mm-hmm. we, we can see in history how it started with just a a, a small grave, a desert grave, with some some earth mm-hmm. shucked over it. But the problem is, then you would have the jackals that would come and eat the remains of the people, yeah. and that wasn't very dignified. So they would just put a big old slab of rock on top. But one thing led to another, and you know, pretty soon you had two slabs and three slabs and four slabs, <laughs> and and you'd have they would sort of taper off towards a point at the top. And mm-hmm. you can actually see the development of the ancient pyramid from this sort of simple grave with a slab on top towards these really elaborate structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, The pyramid is also interesting because it kind of unites the four directions in space. Mm-hmm. It says, okay, you have the east and the west, and you have the north and the south, but they all meet at this point. And that this central point is also a point of vertical ascent up into heaven and Hmm. some people have said that the particular inclination of the pyramids has to do with the angle of the sun on a particular day of the year namely the equinox right sure exactly yeah and its precision is sort of unarguable Uh, right and i think what we can say there is that it's taking the four directions of space and relating them to something that is eternal, something that is absolute, mm-hmm. something that isn't ephemeral. Right. But you find pyramids all over the world, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we also see uh, very similar pyramid structures uh, in Mexico, especially if you take the more ancient form of the pyramid as sort of representing not just a uh, triangular smooth shape, but sort of that step shape. Um, you see them in ancient Mesopotamia, you see them in Thailand, they're all over in Asia. I think there's even some huge mounds that can be understood as pyramids to the ancients in Russia. So, yeah, you you literally see these figures spanning continents. In Buddhism, you have this these so-called stupas, which, again, is mm-hmm. basically a mound of dirt that's shoveled over an old relic of, of a holy man or woman. They also develop, I guess, I guess it's a, it's a universal trait of mankind to just build bigger and higher. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, than your forefathers. Um, sure. these eventually evolved or some say into these ginormous elaborate pagodas, you know, with, with gold ornaments and, mm-hmm. and these amazing structures of, of our architecture. Sure, and in all of these cases, you see these uh, the man-made structures as representing a great reverence that's trying to be expressed both for the burial purpose, um, but also in, in reverence to uh, acknowledge their reach into the heavens. I mean, you also see ancient depictions of the Tower of Babylon as being a great pyramid structure. Right, absolutely. I think what you can say is that there's an attempt at transcendence within the architecture itself. 
Exactly. So we talked earlier about the seed in heaven mm -hmm. coming down into earth and germinating there. And that sort of hints at a tree, don't you think? Well, sure. I mean, the ultimate expression of uh, effective germination is uh, a plant or, in this case, a great tree. A seed is kind of like a blueprint. It's kind of like a, the, the spark that sparks this, this giant structure. You know, mm -hmm. it holds within itself the potential for this enormous tree when it is united with earth. Right. It requires that unification because by itself, the potentiality of a seed can never express its actual purpose. Exactly. Exactly. The seed is kind of like the matrix. It's kind of like the, the fountain of the potential tree, if you will. Right. And so, just like the sacred mountain and, this, and the sacred structures, the tree is a mythological symbol of this center of the world, mm -hmm. axis mundi type of concept. Definitely. Remaining in Asia, you see it in the Bodhi tree, which is this giant tree where at the foot of which the Buddha meditated. And oh, right. that's where he received his enlightenment. Yeah. You see it also in Norse mythology in the world tree of Yggdrasil, mm -hmm. which was quite literally the world tree. And just like in many other cultures, the higher you go on the tree, the more pure are the beings. Right. The higher up you go, there you have the gods, and below there you have sort of half gods, half men, and below the roots you have the demons, oh, yeah. so to speak. And this ash tree, this tree Yggdrasil, is also a symbol of wisdom, because there is a story of Odin, how he hangs on the tree for three days and three nights to mm -hmm. receive this sacred wisdom. Right. Sounds familiar. Yeah, it does sound familiar. Huh? <laughs> yeah, and you see in the Kabbalistic tradition, and, and especially in the Golden Dawn tradition that borrows it, uh, this tree of life figure then comes to represent a glyph that captures within it a map, if you will, to the entire cosmos. It represents both that macrocosm and the microcosm, uh, the universe in its entirety. And each branch, each... Uh, sphere upon this tree represents a new type of expression from the divine where at the summit of this tree in what's called keter or the crown of the tree is this crown just like the crown of a tree right just like the crown of a tree uh, represents this single point of unity this point of infinite potentiality that then expresses itself through the various uh, leaves and, and branches of the tree of life. But there's another tree as well in the Judeo-Christian world of symbolism, and that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Mm, yes. The tree that God told Adam and Eve that of all the trees in the garden, this was the one tree whose fruit they could not eat. And when they did disobey and they yeah. ate of yeah. this tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they... Bad Adam and Eve. Bad, bad, bad Adam and Eve. <laughs> then they fell in sin against God, and they became aware of their own nakedness in the face of God. And it was from then on that God cast Adam and Eve out of Eden, and ever since mankind has been divided from its creator. So you have the Garden of Eden, which is a place co-inhabited by man and woman and of God. Right. So you have God and humanity in the same physical location. United. United. 
and through a sense of, of loss of innocence, or perhaps a sense of hubris, humanity is expelled from that place. Mm-hmm. But with the promise that we can return, and if we do, we will again find this conjoined place in the world. It's not just a state achieved by meditation, but rather it really is a dwelling of man and the divine. Uh, When we read about the various stories of the Garden of Eden, God lived with man and man lived with God. And so it's this unification when heaven and earth meet, where our lives, where we express the potentiality of the divine, meets with that ultimate presence, that continual presence of the divine within every action that we take. Throughout the entire Bible narrative, this idea of of the indwelling of God comes back in, in, in kind of regular intervals. You see it in the tabernacle or the mishkan in the Exodus. It's called the mishkan, the, the tent, um, where God recites, where his presence, his word recites. I think that's called shakan. So he says something like, mm-hmm. There's a pun in there. I have shakan in a mishkan. Um, and then you have the shakanah or the shekinah, which is the indwelling mm-hmm. of God, um, which follows humanity in all of their stages of, of, of history. Um, and then in the, in the New Testament, you have again the idea of God and mankind uniting in a person. Right. Right. So again, all throughout the Bible narrative, you have this concept of the high and the low coming together in some sort of structure. Is it the structure mm-hmm. of a person? Is it the structure of, of a place? Or, mm-hmm. or is, it, is it a burning bush? You know? Right. And we can say clearly that uh, despite anyone's particular exoteric religious affiliations, that it's clear that this represents a yearning in mankind that crosses culture for man to unite with its divine source. So if there was ever um, any sort of evidence for the presence of a divine source that we came from, we could look at this yearning that's almost encoded in our DNA that crosses boundaries of, of culture. And so you see represented in all of the various uh, arts and religions of the world this expression of the yearning for man to return once again to that almost unobtainable dwelling place of the divine. I think it's a very common feature in all kinds of cultural expressions, this idea of a paradise lost, this idea of of this great time in the past where things were easy and where we lived as gods. It seems to be almost like a collective memory of some Mm -hmm. sort. Right, you You have Utopia, Shangri-La, the Garden of Eden. It's kind of like... A statement about the world that we see around us, you know, it's pretty good, but it could be so much better. Right. It used to be good, didn't it? Yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe it's like, maybe it's like a grown man reminiscing about his childhood. Mm-hmm. And maybe we as a culture reminisce about some great and distant past where everything was great. Wow. I don't think, I don't know if that's factually true. Remember last time we talked about is something historically true or is it metaphorically true or i think this is one of those truths that that just makes sense to people it, yeah. it just feels like there is a, a a resonance in our in our soul when we think about something that was lost because that's the, that's a state of, of human affairs yeah and in the face of the absence of proof to the contrary it seems very advantageous to what can be obtained 
if we hold on to this sacred mystery and see where it leads us. Because maybe it is a calling. Maybe it's exactly like you say. It's like a yearning. It's like a calling. Uh, it's a it's a pull mm-hmm. towards the center, yeah. towards unification between what we consider base and what we consider high, between the the sacred and us, between the subtle and the gross, between the subtle and the gross. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We see examples of people who have managed to find their center. You know, think of the the Buddha, for example, mm-hmm. right? Who sits under his tree. And then suddenly he realizes that all the suffering and, you know, all these, these eternal truths that he realizes. Mm-hmm. And he finds the center and he's, he finds that he's able to remain in his body. And yet his mind is in the clouds. His mm-hmm. mind is with the gods, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we see that in many cases. Yeah. People who are able to find their own center internally and thereby finding the axis on which their own world spins. Mm. In yoga and in Tai Chi, you have the human body as an example of the axis mundi. And maybe there's something to that. You know, in the Kabbalah, you have the primordial man who's, mm-hmm. who's sort of projected onto the tree of life. You could also think of the very famous drawing by Leonardo da Vinci. It's called the Vitruvian Man. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically shows the sacred proportions or the golden mean and, and, and that kind of thing yeah. expressed in the human body, which again are eternal virtues that are expressed in the body. Right. And they're in, at the very center of, of the circle that the man stands inside is, is his navel. Right. Right. And the navel being the center of man, um, or with the Greek word, that would be the omphalos. Mm-hmm. Forgive my Greek pronunciation, <laughs> but the omphalos is, is another example of this idea of the axis mundi or the center of the world. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's the microcosm. Oh, yeah. And then people express this idea, this internal truth externally by pointing at mountains, by building pyramids, by erecting all these structures, mm-hmm. or perhaps even by seeking out the mountaintop. Right. Like we see in book 13 of the Corpus Hermeticum, which is also called the Secret Sermon on the Mountain. Mm. And uh, there Hermes and Tat have ventured up on a mountaintop. And Tat receives a uh, a sermon about the eternal seed and about the sower of that seed, i.e. the one mind who plants the seed in the earth and the seed grows up, withers and dies, but then gives off more seeds. So it's it's a story about birth about death and about rebirth and all these transcendental values. So from our new point of center to modern man, um, you know, mountains just don't seem high enough. And perhaps we can see... There ain't no mountain high. (laughs) (laughs) There ain't no mountain high enough. So, so, So what's next? Well, the next summit would seem to be the surface of the moon, right? In modern times, now that used to be the unobtainable goal, to land a man on the moon. And then even today, you know, especially in the United States, there are movements to try to develop technologies that will allow us to return to the moon and even beyond to put man into Mars. And so so space now becomes modern man's new Mount Olympus. It represents, again, another difficult journey into the heavens in the hopes that, you know, we may bring back to the earth new wisdom, new understanding of not only the universe and the macrocosm, but also ourselves and our own personal microcosms. It's funny you should say that, because, you know, the trend in science over the past couple of centuries has been one of 
decreased significance, mm-hmm. yeah. not only on the earth, but of, of humanity itself. Right. And I think that's kind of sad. I don't think we have to, we don't have to uh, deprecate ourselves so much. Yeah. In the ancient days, man was the center of the cosmos. It was a crown of, of creation. Yeah. And the, the earth was at the center of the universe, was at the center of the solar system, etc. And then with Copernicus and, and, and Kepler, we realized, okay, well, maybe the earth isn't at the center. Maybe the sun is at the center. Mm-hmm. And maybe things don't move in perfect circles. You know, things aren't that perfect. And, and then we realized, okay, so we're, we're not actually at the center of the universe. We're not even at the center of the galaxy. And this galaxy isn't even at the center of the universe. And we're kind of coming towards this point where, there is no center. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the universe just seems to be this place that has no circumference and no center. Mm. So it's kind of a matter of postulation, you know. Yeah. And why not postulate that this is it, you know. This pyramid that I'm building, this is it. Or this mountain that I'm climbing, this is mm-hmm. it. Or, or the place where I'm sitting, this is it. Yeah, and if we have any hopes um, through our hermetic journey to obtain knowledge and conversation with the divine, to obtain wisdom of the heavens, then what better place to start than the very center that is in our heart? I couldn't have said it any better. Join us next time for another fascinating journey towards the center of all things. Yes. This has been Chasing Hermes. Uh, You know that you can go and visit us on our website, the address will be mentioned again at the end of this presentation we appreciate all of your comments uh thank you all of you who have given us positive reviews on itunes and on the various feeds out there keep them coming we look forward to your uh, comments thanks for listening visit our website at www.chasinghermes.com or send us an email at info at chasinghermes.com To inquire about the Western mystery tradition, please visit www.western-mysteries.com.